This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is the start of the Olympics, and we are very pleased to be joined right now by Dr. Jane Thornton from Western University as we talk Olympic Games. Dr. Thornton, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. When we look at athletes, and let's focus in on athletes, this has to be different for them in that the athletes' village is very different. They were told a long time ago, get in, compete, get out. You spend a lot of time dealing with the mental health of high-end athletes, of Olympic athletes. How do you think this changes things for them, if it does at all? I think it's a great question. We've seen when the pandemic first hit, I think that the first thing we started seeing as physicians was just really the uncertainty. But for a lot of those athletes, it was for, for athletes that potentially hadn't qualified at that point for the Olympic Games yet and whether or not their chance would be taken away from them was uh, really at the forefront of their minds. And also the uncertainty of being able to train and compete. What would that look like for swimmers who didn't have access to pools and things like that? So that was by by far what we started seeing was that kind of an uptick in anxiety. Uh, as the pandemic wore on, and sometimes that was replaced by guilt or depression, and uh, there certainly were a wide range of emotions like we see in the general public as well with uh, people whose livelihood was potentially taken away from them or changed in a very big way. So that's what we started seeing. Every every Olympics uh, is different, and they all have their challenges. But certainly with Tokyo, this is really a once in a lifetime occurrence with a year delay, and uh, they certainly uh, athletes have had to be ready for anything. Now, you yourself are a high end athlete who has gone to the worlds, has gone to the Olympics as well, and you know about that preparation aspect. Take us through what this past year must have been like in thinking last year, okay, we're we're getting ready, your 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 peak training is getting you set for this particular date, the date the Olympics were going to be held, and then all of the uncertainty this year. What must that have been like? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it goes through every athlete's head, mind, I guess, in the sense of when they're trying to qualify for a spot to the Olympic team. So that could be for the athlete who's trying to make the Canadian team for the first time, uh, for a national team, for example, not even just an Olympic team, but then trying to make the Olympic team or trying to qualify their spot internationally. There's always these times of uncertainty or where an athlete may be thinking, uh, am I up for this? What can I do? Uh, will I, will I make it? And, that time that you clinch an Olympic spot is really like no other. I mean, for sure, it's a sense of relief and it's a sense of uh, redirection in the sense that now you can and go forward and every ounce of preparation and training goes into that moment that you arrive at on, on the scene. Um, but for those athletes that had qualified and just in that sense of they still didn't have that sense of, wow, is there actually going to be an Olympics that I'm going to compete at? So it was a very different uh, story for them, and and some became very creative and uh, tried to do different things in order to keep up their training. And we did actually see over the last year, even from an international perspective, the research coming out is really that in many respects, athletes are still breaking records. And so even the way that we thought about preparation for games in terms of having daily access to your normal training facilities has been upended a little bit. So there are certainly athletes that have managed to thrive through this, 
Um, but in general, most are, are really trying to kind of wrap their minds around it. And, and I think it just speaks to the resilience and uh, mental fortitude of, of the athletes. And, and especially on the Canadian side, we've seen some uh, remarkable results. We're talking with Dr. Jane Thornton, Canadian clinician, scientist, Olympic rower, and international advocate for physical activity as well. Dr. Thornton, take us back to your own experience. You mentioned when you clinch that Olympic position, when you know you are going to the Olympics. How does that feel, number one, and then how do you deal with it so that you're you're ready? That's not the top of the mountain yet. That, that's just a, a step along the way. How, how do you keep from being hey i've done it and then still be ready for competition it's a it's a really exciting moment i mean to it takes me back a little bit i competed at the 2008 olympics and in 2006 we had won the world championships in the women's pair but the and the year later we qualified the boat but the women's eight did not qualify and it was actually a decision by our uh national sporting organization rowing canada and the coaches as well to prioritize the women's aid to get more people to the Olympics. So they actually asked us to hop into that to go to a last chance qualifier. So even in that sense, the year leading up to Beijing was not uh, clear cut for us and the women's pair. And so we did end up qualifying the women's eight a month and a half out of Beijing. And that was the first time we knew what crew we were going to race at the Olympics. And so that moment uh, that we crossed the finish line uh, at those Olympic qualifiers and realized that we had finally formed our team and we knew where we were going. And we managed to help seven other members of the team because we have a coxswain in the women's eight. So there's nine members. We qualified seven other members to join us um, and, you know, at the opening ceremonies. It was just such a special moment. And, you know, at the regatta itself and to take along um, seven more team members was very special. So once that moment is over, it is really not a time for celebration. You celebrate very moment, you know, just that day and then not even right. You get on a plane the next morning, you're back to training. And it's just that refocus of thinking that we have limited time and we have to just devote every moment of our attention to to that first and second and third race. And uh, and so it really does give you a sense of uh, everything has to be very intentional from that point forward. We're talking with Dr. Jane Thornton, who is the Canada Research Chair in Injury Prevention and Physical Activity for Health at Western University, also a, an Olympic rower and a Canadian clinician scientist. Dr. Thornton, anyone can have self-doubt, but we watch athletes at the Olympics and you watch the best of the best doing what they're doing and and you think wow look at look at that confidence that they exude how does an athlete deal with their own mental state and and their own confidence in trying to go in and say yeah you know what I I am one of the best in the world I I I've qualified I do deserve to be here how do you deal with that yeah, I think that it happens in stages. So they, we don't have, I mean, no athlete will get to the Olympic Games as kind of a, you know, this is a first experience racing. And oftentimes confidence is a byproduct of of continued success and and trials and even failures. It's all kind of steps towards that goal. So ultimately, the more that you're training, the more that you have competitions where you're racing, you see how you stack up, you start becoming uh, aware of how you you uh, you might perform on on that day, so I think part of it is that demystifying the the actual event and the race itself. That we do these things on a uh, on a on an almost daily basis in many sports. So you've lined up against your competitors, even that's your teammates. 
other people in, in Canada or overseas so many times that you know the drill, you know your routine, you know what works for you. And by that time, everything is really set up and prepared. And we do, as athletes, really do exist in a bit of a bubble in the sense that, especially if you've got your support team around you, uh, the you are able to focus just on what's in front of you at that time. So I think it's that sense of being present in the moment, know what it's taken you to get this far and feel confident that all the preparation you could possibly have done, whatever's within your control, you've taken care of it. So I think that instills a sense of confidence that you're ready for anything at that point. Can it feel normal at the start line? And by that, I guess uh, there was a former National Hockey Leaguer by the name of Perry Barazan who was playing for the Calgary Flames in 1986, and they made the Stanley Cup final. And he was on the blue line as Old Canada was playing at the Montreal Forum, looking around going, huh, so this is the Stanley Cup final, huh? Yeah, it looks like any other game. The blue line's the same color. Fans are in the same seats. Everything, it just it felt normal almost. Does it feel like that at the start line on the water at an Olympics? It does, and, it's, and it is one of those mental rehearsal things that we try to do is a sense of, you know, for us, we race 2,000 meters, so every time you race 2,000 meters, it's exactly the same distance. You know, I've heard of basketball pros saying no matter what, the, um, the net is the same, so the court is the same, and so the same measurements and things like that. And, and so even though you have a sense of awe when you are in the games in the sense of the enormity of it, if you walk into for an Olympic um, opening ceremonies, for example, it just it is on a scale that we've never seen before in one sense. But then once you get to the venue, it's often quite a bit smaller because you would normally see more competitors at international events or world championships than you do in Olympics. So in that case, it does feel somewhat normal and all the same routines are set in place. So we do rehearse for those uh, events as well. So I think that that becomes part of it that you and we to perform our best, we really do want to normalize that and kind of take out the, um, you know, this is something uh, bigger than I can uh, train for, that kind of thing. Dr. Jane Thornton with us, Canada Research Chair in Injury Prevention and Physical Activity for Health at Western University. Dr. Thornton, just two more things, one, of course, being injury, and we'll get to that in just a moment, and how you stay healthy and how healthy athletes might be not having to have competed as much going into these games. But in terms of the athlete's village, we're seeing a lot of people go in and be told, get in like a day before your event, have your event, and then, foof, you are, you're gone. And the athlete's village is, is maybe a little bit different. Is there something that athletes this year might miss out on? Does it take away maybe some of the distractions that might exist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's so athlete dependent. It's interesting. I you, you notice on teams that there's always going to be those athletes that want to stay by themselves anyways, that don't do it for the crowds. They are uh, would rather just uh, put their head down and race and have blinders on essentially or compete. And those are the people that probably don't mind that there isn't a lot going on and that they can just focus on the task at hand. There are always, of course, those athletes that you know, the ones at track and field events, we can all kind of picture that are raising their hands and clapping to get the crowd going before they do their event that really uh, are buoyed by the kind of the crowd and the intensity of, of the moment. And so I think that will be harder to uh, wrap their minds around the, the just the absence of fans in the stands or the empty stands that they'll see or the empty Olympic Village and things like that. But having said all of that, uh, we 
I mean, athletes prepare for so long for these that I, in, in so many different scenarios that I'm sure that they will be prepared for any eventuality. They have to be at this stage. Um, and uh, for those that may let it get to them, then I think that that's not going to be, that's going to be tougher to, to overcome for sure. Right. And then I guess as a final question, there hasn't been as much competition. And a lot of athletes are saying, I haven't felt this good in a long time. What is kind of the injury status and how do you approach things to try and stay healthy as an athlete going through a competition like this? Right. I think what we're starting to see certainly from uh, in the sports medicine side is that people that are getting back to sport in general, not necessarily at the elite level, are starting to see overuse injuries or injuries crop up just because they have not been training at the same uh, level throughout. So we are starting to see a, a kind of an uptick in those types of injuries. But at the elite level, even though they're not training in their sport, they've been able to take off uh, time, but they would generally focus on something else. So if they're not necessarily doing their sport, um, able to access the track, for example, potentially they're doing something else in a type of cross training that allows them to still perform at the same intensity. So the flip side of it is, and I think it's interesting, all uh, interesting to a lot of the sports scientists and coaches and, and sport medicine people out there is that people now have had a chance to dial back for a moment and actually work on biomechanics or work on rehabbing or work on strengthening weaknesses that they may have had because they're not doing their specific events. So they are actually coming back healthier, stronger, refreshed, mentally ready to go. And so that's why I think we're seeing this other subset of people that are just thriving through this pandemic because they've had that ability to step back for a moment and, and rehab potential injuries that they couldn't have done before. So in that respect, I think we're seeing that kind of probably two categories of people, those that have probably stayed away too long and not done the due diligence of getting ready to, to return back to sport. But then the generally speaking, the elite level athletes will have had a training plan in mind so that they're actually using it to their advantage. Well, we'll see what happens. Hopefully the injury side is the only thing that people have to be worried about, and COVID-19 mm -hmm. does not become a major storyline at these games. But, Dr. Thornton, we appreciate you taking us through your own experience and what some of the athletes will certainly be going through and facing as they head through the Tokyo Games. Please keep safe. Great. Thanks. You too. Take care. That's Dr. Jane Thornton, Canada Research Chair in Injury Prevention and Physical Activity for Health at Western University and a, an Olympic rower in Beijing. The Seattle Kraken are starting to take shape. This is a reality. I don't know if they've secured the rights to release the Kraken. You have to imagine they would be. I don't know. Who do you have to pay for that? MGM? Do they own that? I don't know. Somebody owns that. You'll have to give them money in order to yell release the Kraken, I'm sure. Maybe they'll make some other little line that they can use. That's beside the point. Even before they get to a point where they can release the Kraken, they have to have Kraken to release. So tonight, the NHL expansion draft is going to take place, and usually it is the time when you learn who will be on the team. But there has been a lot of reporting going on even before then as to who might be on the team, and there certainly has been a lot of educated speculation, and we would like to bring some of that educated speculation to London Live now. John Mattis from thescore.com joins us. John, how are things? 
Things are things are going well. Uh, I like that educated speculation. I'm going to use that in the future. Okay, it's all yours, and you don't have to pay me like the Seattle Kraken. They're going to have to pay somebody. <laughs> I ask for no money whatsoever. That's all yours. You came up with it. Let's kind of look at this day so far because the draft itself happens at eight o'clock, which is kind of prime time ESPN ready to go let's have a show we've seen little videos that may or may not be used by ESPN that have been making their way around the internet that show how some of the picks might be announced but we're starting to see reports of guys who are apparently going to be picked what do you make of what the day has been like so far yeah based on like rumors slash reports um, and I, there's a difference between the two, but if they're coming from the right people, it's similar. Um, 29 of 30 picks uh, are out there in the open. <laughs> the, the, the Detroit Red Wings are the only ones that haven't leaked anything. So, uh, it, it, I mean, it's a flawed system, though. You can't blame the reporters out there that are calling around because the player who is um, picked by the expansion draft, or sorry, by the Kraken in the expansion draft, he finds out through his agent. So the agent knows, the player knows. Word starts going around. Obviously, there's these front offices uh, who have people in it that, are, you know, talk to reporters. So the fact that you have the list completed and finalized and into the league early in the morning and then we're waiting until 8 p.m. Eastern, that's a lot of time for people to make calls, a lot of time for word to spread. And once we're, you know, 10 names in, what's the point? Let's just, you know, hear them all, right? So we're, we're pretty much there. 29 of 30, Steve Eiserman has kept things zipped. We'll see if... Uh, it makes it to 8 p.m., but there's a lot of a lot of hype around this Detroit pick now. This is the only one that we don't know about. <laughs> and how great is it that it's Steve Eiserman that has kept this quiet? Is anybody better at that than Steve Eiserman? Well, I'm surprised that the Islanders uh, pick uh, trickled out because obviously Lou Lamorello famously is is really tight with that, and and it's not only on his end, but he tells the other side of the table, the agents and whatnot, to keep your mouth shut because it's just sort of the way he operates and. There's a lot of respect um, that people give Lamorello for how long he's been around the league, and he's you know a good person, et cetera. So he tends to be the guy that everyone talks about as you know you put in the vault and, and nothing leaks. But Eiserman's right up there too. I've actually heard stories about him uh, reaming out reporters if they do report something uh, before it becomes official. So I guess there's some an intimidation factor there as well. John Mattis from thescore.com joining us along with Josh Goldsmith. John and Josh put together a kind of a preview of who each team could take if you're keeping score have have you looked at what you're hearing and and what the rumor mill says and what you guys selected it's not it's not pretty it's probably, probably <laughs> but it ne- them, we should right? say it never is right i mean no it, yeah it's like it's like you know we all we're also publishing a mark mock draft for the actual draft the entry draft and that's going to be a crapshoot in itself as it always is <clears throat> excuse me but with this one, you make your educated guesses, but at the end of the day, you have a team in the Seattle Kraken that can go so many ways with this, and every pick, so say like the Leafs pick, just to use a random team, that pick is related to the Habs pick, is related to the Islanders pick, is related to the Oilers pick. So you could think, oh, why wouldn't they take so-and-so? Well, it's because they took this other guy and another team that, that is essentially the same player, so now they, they sort of go to plan B with that original team, like everything's connected, even though they, they, they can, you know, load up on all the talent in the world. They can try to win now. Like, like Vegas ended up doing 
people forget that they didn't exactly hit out of the park with the expansion draft uh, at the time. But that's beside the point. The the Kraken can take it so many ways. They can they can think, oh, this is a five to ten year plan um, because we have a really good fan base already. It's a hockey market. Um, we have a GM that's known to be conservative and known to be sort of a long term builder. We have a head coach in Dave Haxtall who's best known for his work in the college ranks when he was at the University of North Dakota. So you start kind of connecting the dots and you're like, well, they're probably going to go young. They're probably going to be conservative here. And it's all going to be fine because they have the fan base. They have a new arena to show off. They're going to have some good players. It's not like they're going to be bad. And then you have the 2022 and 2023 drafts, which are supposed to be phenomenal. So you're kind of setting yourself up to get some decent picks in those drafts. And then you roll from there. So, it's that that's been my thinking in the back of my head and I have no line to Ron Francis the decision maker here but that what I've connected the dots I've been thinking they're probably going to be uh I guess a little more cautious or a little more long term than perhaps people want them to be John Maddox joining us from the score.com John you mentioned something really interesting because we all have short short memories and you think well the Vegas Golden Knights they must have rocked it in the expansion draft because, look, they made it to the Stanley Cup final in their first year. They must have picked everybody in the right way. But it's kind of the side hustles that made Vegas good, wasn't it? Yeah, and we haven't found out what those side hustles are with Seattle, so perhaps you know there's more to come on the talent front. Because if you look at the reported roster they have now, I mean, it's, it's nothing special. Um, there's some really good pieces, Yanni Gore, Mark Giordano, uh, Jared McCann. There's, you know, maybe 10 out of 29. You go, oh, yeah, that, that's the person you would pick no matter what. But the rest, some of them are random prospects that don't project to be much. So you think, okay, what kind of side deal is going to come down the pike here? So there's more to come on that front. And then to circle back to the Knights, 100%. I mean, if you look at their top line uh, that, that's been around for four years now of March or so, Riley Smith, and Carlson, you know, those were all sort of cast-offs, and they were guys that had to be uh, acquired via trade or, I guess, you know, picked as well. But it it turned out just beautifully for them. And one of the things that the, the Knights did uh, that I'll give them credit for in terms of uh, it all working out for them is that they picked a lot of guys in, like, their prime. So it could have been an unknown player or, like, let's just say Alex Tuck. He was like 22 or something when they picked him. Well, he's only going to grow into that. He's only going to, you know, hit that ceiling at 25, 26, versus if you're picking 30-year-olds or just 18-year-olds, you're not going to have a, a quality team right away. So, yeah, it, it, it just – another thing that we forget, too, is that sometimes this stuff's just fluky, right? I mean, all these picks that the Kraken are making are – are, uh, as you said, educated speculation in a lot of ways. Their speculation is grounded more in data and in video and in a lot of conversations. But, you know, there's certain picks that won't work out. There's certain players that were on Vegas their first year that, you know, could have won different ways. You look at William Carlson, he gets 40 goals. Well, he hasn't done that well since. So, like, you know, what kind of player are you getting? Are they going to really get motivated by being, quote-unquote, I guess, left exposed for for the expansion draft are they going to be fueled by that like a lot of the vegas players are so there's that angle too so 
yeah. I mean, Vegas has been just a model franchise since they entered the league, so you got to give them huge props for that. And they've done a lot of aggressive things, and it's it's great for the sport. But there's a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of just really hitting on like every single transaction almost, and it's almost uh, super difficult slash impossible to replicate that. John, as a final thing, Seattle would probably be in tough to follow in Vegas's shoes, right? Making the Stanley Cup final in your first year. Do you think they will get those comparisons given the rules were essentially the same and how many players could be protected and all of those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally fair for people to default to that. Um, it happened four years ago. It's not like the league's any different. Like you said, the rules are the same. And if you looked at all the players that were exposed, I mean, you could put together quite the roster. It's just I think that they've chosen a bit of a different route. I guess we'll see what these trades end up being. But based on the roster, it doesn't scream to me that they want to you know, go all in on their first year. And I'm not saying that Vegas did that either based on their draft. But they're certainly not chasing the Golden Knights' success, if that makes sense. It seems like a long-term play here. It seems like a sustainable success play here and they're going to face those inevitable comparisons but at the end of the day i think what the golden knights did was like a one in a million thing and i'm obviously exaggerating but also not really like an expansion <laughs> team going to the cup final in a team in a league that has so they were the 31st team 30 other teams i mean that's just insane that's just crazy so it the fact the the, the chances of it happening again regardless of what seattle's roster looks like and how they approach things it's just so slim that is some excellent educated speculation right there, John. <laughs> a very slim chance that it does happen again, but it does create another new team in the National Hockey League, and the Kraken will be released tonight, at least in their initial form. The expansion draft list, as John says, 29 of 30 names have at least been rumored or reported, so ESPN might be saying, yeah, we're not doing it this way again. We're going to do this at 10 in the morning when all the lists come in, and Anybody who wants to watch will watch on their phones. John, enjoy what remains of the day, and we'll look forward to more coverage of the NHL at thescore.com. Really appreciate it. Hey, Mike, don't don't discredit that Detroit pick. Don't forget, we still got one left here. It could be really interesting. <laughs> you wonder if they'll do it first or last, or I, I wonder. It'll be interesting to watch. I'll still be watching. You know, the hockey nuts will still be there. Even if you know everything, you, you'll watch it again, just like we were watching repeats of all kinds of playoff games during the pandemic. We were still there. John, have a great day. Be safe. Cheers. That's John Mattis. Used to write here in London and now with the score.com as their national hockey writer. So 29 of the 30 picks have been reported or at least rumored. Steve Eiserman holding strong. Hold strong, Steve. Don't let anybody know. We want to welcome the Associate Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit to London Live, Dr. Alex Summers. Dr. Summers, how are things? Hey, Mike, things are going okay. The weather's nice. People are getting vaccinated. I can't complain. Good. You know what? Here's something that many of us may have been wondering. How long can you go during the course of a day where COVID-19 doesn't enter into something that you're doing? <laughs> 
uh, every once in a while, I'll watch a 30-minute sitcom, and for the most time, I can get away with that. How's that for an answer? <laughs> really? And otherwise, it'll just pop up on a phone pretty uh, steadily? Pretty steadily. It's uh, We're 18 months into COVID-19 being the, uh, the sun and the moon in my days some days, but uh, we're getting there. For anyone looking to binge-watch shows, what 30 minutes do you dive into? I'm a Brooklyn Nine-Nine guy. I'm a big fan of that. And, uh, you know, looking for suggestions. Ted Lasso came my way the other day as something to check out. So we'll uh, turn our energy towards that at some point. If you haven't seen the first season of Ted Lasso, the second season is actually coming out on Friday. So you'll love it. The first season is fantastic. It'll easily take anything away from COVID-19 for a good 30 minutes. It's, uh, It's perfect that way. Perfect. Dr. Summers... When we're looking at at kids, this has become kind of a question mark for a lot of parents. There's a lot of talk this week about back to school and what that will look like. And here we are. We have people who are 12 and over who've been able to get vaccinated. But there's a lot of people who live in our area who are under the age of 12. What do we know about the situation for those who are still really, really young? Yeah, so certainly the vaccine is not yet approved in those under the age of 12. We anticipate, given what we're hearing from uh, federal agencies and, and Pfizer and Moderna, that some of that information, will, uh, the data that's being collected, will be available to the regulators in the fall. And so maybe mid to late fall, but who knows, we may see that vaccine approved for younger age brackets. But again, that's more speculative than anything. The key thing is between now and then, The Delta variant and uh, the COVID virus continues to circulate in our community. And the critical thing to recognize is that the way that we can protect those under the age of 12 is to get everybody who is eligible vaccinated, to continue to wear those masks when you're indoors, and as much as possible between now and the fall, keep things outdoors. Those are the real keys to this. Again, it hopefully will be in a position where we can offer vaccines sooner than later to those under the age of 12. But since we can't, in the meantime, the best thing we can do is get everybody else vaccinated. We hear arbitrary numbers sometimes, and they certainly have been there during this pandemic, starting with over 80 and over 70 and then different age groups. And then all of a sudden it was, okay. well, we can vaccinate people between the ages of 12 and 18. They're okay. What is it about humans under 12 that might make their situation a little bit different from the rest of the humans on the planet? Mm-hmm. So uh, kids under the age of 12 or kids in general are, jo- are not just little adults. Their immune systems can respond differently. Um, and sometimes actually they have even better immune responses. And so sometimes they, some, they need less doses of a vaccine. That can be the case as well. But what we know is that their bodies respond differently. They're not fully developed in certain ways. And it means that we need to collect different data to inform us whether or not uh, which sorry, which type of protocol should be taken. That's the big thing with those under the age of 12. Why is 12 the cutoff? Well, 12 is just, a again, generally speaking, where the, um, you know, the human body can transition into more of that adolescent body that's going to respond a lot more like an adult to these types of things. Do I think in the long run that vaccination is going to be safe and effective in kids? Absolutely. It's just important that we get enough data information so we can move forward with that to understand, you know, what's the appropriate dose, how many doses are required, 
At what interval do we give those doses? And of course, is it safe? I anticipate absolutely it will be, but we need to follow the right process just like we did when it was improved in adults and adolescents. And we're still trying to do this all really, really fast. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just with the first, you know, even with the initial approval of the vaccine, things are going very quick. But one of the reasons things are going real quick is, you know, very rarely in the scientific community have we had so much expertise, energy and resources invested and focused on one single thing, and that's the vaccine. We're talking with Dr. Alex Summers, Associate Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. When we're dealing with fourth wave and we're hearing that that's largely people who have not been vaccinated, do kids count in those numbers? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I, when we look at the fourth wave um, potential here in Ontario and when we look at the fourth wave's or the Delta waves that have been happening in other parts of the world, it is being driven by that Delta variant, and it's being driven amongst primarily those who are unvaccinated. The challenge is is that as COVID circulates more and more, some vaccinated people will also get infected. Typically, those who are vaccinated, though, have significantly more mild symptoms and are at far less risk, if any risk at all, for hospitalization and death. Kids are included in those pockets of unvaccinated individuals, and again, through the circumstance that they're not eligible at this point for the vaccine. And one of the reasons, again, why we highlight so much that we want essentially everybody who's eligible to get vaccinated is that's the way that we can even have a hope at herd immunity for those kids to protect them. Do we know with the Delta variant, whatever variants may come next, has herd immunity been affected in terms of the number of people, the percentage of people that would have to be vaccinated? Does that change at all? It changes quite a bit. Because the Delta variant is so infectious, the proportion of people who need to get vaccinated so that we can achieve that herd immunity, and when I say herd immunity, that's the protection to those who aren't vaccinated because everybody else is vaccinated. In order to achieve that, the proportion has to be significantly higher. Some of the estimates are that more than 90% of the whole population would need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity with the Delta variant because it's so transmissible. But the challenge is that 8% of our population can't get vaccinated because they're already under the age of 12, which means that we essentially need everybody over the age of 12 to get vaccinated to protect those under the age of 12. And that's honestly why we're pressing so hard for everybody who can roll up their sleeve to do so. We will still have individuals who say, I'm not doing it. I'm not getting vaccinated. I don't like that the vaccine is as as new as it is. There, there hasn't been enough time that sort of thing. What sorts of things do you say to anyone who maybe is is thinking along those lines? I ask more questions about why exactly they're worried. Often people are concerned about the safety. Fair enough. Well, we can tell you that millions of Canadians, hundreds of millions of people across the globe, and literally in our own community, hundreds of thousands of people have received this vaccine, and it has proven itself to be remarkably safe. Remarkably safe. People have questions about the process. Why did it go so fast? Well, I can explain that too. It went quickly because we had lots of people working on it. If you put one person in a rowboat and tell them to get across a lake, they're going to take a lot longer than if you put 24 people in a rowboat and tell them to get across the lake, right? And it's the same thing with the development of this vaccine. Some people have questions about, you know, what are the long-term impacts of this vaccine? It hasn't been around long enough. I got an answer for that too. Never in the history of vaccination has there been a long-term impact on the health and wellness of somebody who took that vaccine, aside from the fact that they're immunized against the thing we vaccinated you for. 
no history of vac- in the history of vaccines there's never been a long standing impact beyond the first you know 14 to 28 days so again there are so many reasons to get vaccinated and so many reasons to be worried if you don't the last thing i'll say is that because the delta variant is so infectious unfortunately at this point you're making a decision you're either going to get vaccinated or at some point in time you're going to get covid-19 and so it's not a decision of do I get vaccinated and avoid COVID-19? Or if I don't get vaccinated, I can still avoid it. You won't. Over time, you will get infected. And so it's really important to recognize that this vaccine is by and far the safer option. I guess as a final question, Dr. Summers, with the plan to go back to school and what appears to be the, the different levels, low level of concern and a medium level of concern and high level of concern, when we look at what parents need to kind of get their heads around for kids going back to school in the fall, if that's the way that it winds up going, what do you think they need to be thinking about? I think we need to focus on the fact that in-person learning for kids uh, is really important and that if we follow some of the uh, structured approaches with masking, if necessary, and with symptom screening and making sure kids don't go to school when sick, that we actually are able to limit transmission in the school environment. And we saw that through the major waves this past winter. When we ended up and the province ended up closing schools, that was because we needed to try literally everything on the table uh, in order to avoid the healthcare system being overwhelmed. But it wasn't because schools were the most unsafe place in the world. We saw relatively limited transmission, all things considered, because of the structured environment of a school. And so as we're preparing for the fall, I think it's important for us to recognize that school matters. It needs to be a priority. And we can make it as safe as possible by doing some of those key things we did in schools last year, as well as ensuring that at home, everybody who can get vaccinated is Transmission predominantly happens outside of the school environment amongst uh, those after school and evening and weekend activities. If we can limit transmission there because everybody who can be vaccinated is, we'll keep schools safe. So would you think that extracurriculars and things like that will ease into those or would those be okay in your mind from the start? I think it's going to depend on what our COVID case rates look like. Uh, at the end of the summer, as well as our vaccination coverage. I really hope those types of activities can continue, but this is going to be a really dynamic uh, response that's going to be required because the caseloads may change uh, fairly readily. Dr. Summers, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time and the insight. You bet. Glad to be with you. Take care. Take care. That's Dr. Alex Summers, Associate Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. So when it comes to kids... Data is due out in the fall with regard to vaccinations, and we'll see what that data shows, but they just want to be as safe as possible, of course. And then from there, if we're looking, another question that we have had, I know Tyler was wondering about this a while ago, if we're talking about a fourth wave and the numbers going into that being unvaccinated individuals, would kids under 12 count into that number? And Dr. Summers said, yeah, they they count as, he said, yes, uh, they count as unvaccinated individuals at this point. And that if we're looking to get the number that you're looking for for herd immunity, a little over 90%, you have to look and say, well, if we add our population together, uh, about 9 or 10% are under the age of 12, so you'd need everybody else in order to get that herd immunity. And right now, that's not where we sit. We'll see whether that does change moving forward. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. 
Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 